following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. People of America, repent. Forty days and the United States will be demolished. Forty days and the United States will be overthrown. What would you do if you heard a message like that? Would you believe it? Would you think about it? Would it scare you? Would you be worried? Would it depend on who it was that was giving you that message? Well, let me ask you another question. Do you think the country in which we live needs a message like that? Does it appear to you from your perspective that everything in the United States of America is going according to God's plan? And that's a funny, funny question I just asked you. It's almost a little trick question. Because we know that God is... He, he hasn't ceased to be in control. He allows things to happen sometimes that may have been different than what he originally designed, like the Garden of Eden is his original design for God and man to live in harmony, for man and creation to live in harmony. And, of course, we look around, and there's nothing but chaos. There's not harmony as we look around. But what would we, what would we think when we look around our country, and not just our country, so don't, I'm not picking on us, look around the world. And look at different countries and cities and places around our, our great world and that God has created and then think to yourself, how would you react to a message like that? Well, it's interesting because that's exactly the message God gave to Jonah to send to the people of Nineveh. And of course, we know the story thus far. We're, we're going to be in chapter 3 today, but... We know how things have gone so far. God came to Jonah, told him to get up, go to Nineveh, and cry out against it, he said in, in chapter 1, because their evil has come up to me. And so Jonah went the other direction. He was disobedient. Tried to go as far as he could the other way. God still had a hold of him. As we saw last week in chapter 2, he was in the ship. They tossed him overboard. God sent a great fish to swallow him up to, to save his life, we should remember, because had he just gone in the water, he'd have died. So God sent the fish as a deliverance, but also as a way to let Jonah be alone with his thoughts for a little while to kind of reevaluate his behavior. And it was inside the, the belly of the fish we saw last week. Jonah prayed. He sorted some things out in his heart and mind. He, he seemed to repent. And so the end of chapter 2, we saw verse 10 last week. God caused the fish or commanded the fish, is what the text tells us, 
to spit Jonah out on the land. And so here we are. Jonah has had some time to reevaluate his life and his life choices, which is, by the way, something very healthy for us to do very frequently is to reevaluate our lives and our life choices to see if we are following what God wants us to do or if we're just doing whatever we want to do. That's a good thing to, to think about all the time. So we get here to chapter 3 today in Jonah, and this is an interesting section of this little prophecy. I've, I've called the message today, People of the Second Chance. And that was a very intentional title because none of us, and I know that's an absolute statement, none, none of us would be where we are now in life or in our Christian lives if God had not given us, not a second chance, multiple chances. So if you, if you are in this room today, if you can hear me talking, then you are included in this none of us would be where we are today had God not given us chance after chance after chance. Because for some reason, and I think we all know, know the reason, it's sin. No matter how hard we try, we can't seem to get it right all the time. We can get it right sometimes. And those are times of victory and celebration when we realize, hey, man, I was tested, but I did exactly what God wanted me to do in that situation. I'm so thankful that, that God gave me the strength to do that. But see, that's because the grace of God is so great. And, and the grace of God, and here's what I mean by that, the unmerited favor of God. You know what unmerited means? Undeserved means there's nothing we can do to be good enough to get it on our own. God has to give us His... That's, that's what grace is. That's the definition of it. We don't deserve it. We get it anyway. The grace of God. It's so great. It's limitless. And I'm thankful it's, it is what it is because otherwise, if God ran out of grace and mercy we'd all be in a mess. And not we just in this room. We as human beings on the earth, we would all be in a mess. We deserve nothing, yet we receive everything, even when we foolishly turn away from it, just like Jonah did. So today, we want to examine some second chances that Jonah had. I want to see how this text, we hopefully, as we read through it, we're all, the, the light bulbs are going to come on and we're going to see how this text so closely relates to our journey through life. So if you would look with me in Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, we're just going to look at Jonah 3 today, verses 1 through 10, as we see the second chance that Jonah received. Here's what the Bible says. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up, went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now, Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three days walk. So Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, In forty days, Nineveh will be demolished. Then the people of Nineveh 
believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and they dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. When word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, and put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes, and he issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. So God saw their actions that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with and he did not do it. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray your word will find its place in our hearts today, that it will filter through our minds, that you would give us understanding, that you'd give us strength for obedience. Lord, help us today. Help us to hear from you. Help us to understand. And then help us obey. For your glory and for our good, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this text is not long, but it is very important. It's only ten verses, but this third chapter of the story, so to speak, is crucial to us and our understanding because of what's coming next week in chapter 4. If you've not read the story all the way through lately, then you may be a little bit surprised at the way it ends when we get to next week. But as far as where we are today, Jonah's been on quite a journey. He was given an opportunity, a command from the very beginning. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, gave him a command, told him, uh, here's your assignment, go here and preach to these people because they're evil. And Jonah didn't listen. So he suffered the consequences, right? And we saw in all of chapter 1 and chapter 2 his exploits, so to speak, the, the way his journey went up until this point. And then we got to the last verse in chapter 2 and it said God commanded. You know, there's a lot of that in there. God appointed a fish. God hurled a storm. God commanded the fish. God's in control of this thing, okay? Don't forget that. God's got a plan, not just for Jonah, for you, for me, for us. So at this point, the key to Jonah's obedience was the fact that God gave him another chance. So when you get to chapter 3 and verse 1, what do you read? The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Praise the Lord that there's grace enough that if he gives you the word the first time and you don't do it, or you do the opposite, you disobey, you rebel, guess what? The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. I'm thankful for the second time. I'm thankful for the hundredth times. Because, you know, some of us are more hard-headed than others. Jonah got the word again. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach the message that I tell you. And by the way, I want you to see 
some parallels as we get to this first, like the first three verses here of chapter 3. Because if you go back to verse 1 of chapter 1, it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, preach against it, because their evil has come up before me. Now, what does he say this time? When the word comes the second time, it's a little bit different. It's almost identical, but it's a little different. Because this time it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh. Okay, so the first two parts are the same. You've got to get up if you're going to go. So get up, go to Nineveh. So one is get up, two is go to Nineveh. What's three? Preach the message that I tell you. That's different than the first one, right? Because the first time he said, preach against it because their evil has come up before me. Now, here's what I want you to know about that. This is so crucial for our understanding. And it applies to me and preachers and teachers uh, a little bit more particularly, but it applies to all of us. You notice that when Jonah received the command in chapter 1, God said, preach against the city because their evil's come up before me. You know what that means? The, the little underlying meaning there, it means that Jonah knew what to say. Preach against them. See, Jonah was supposed to be a prophet of God, which means he was supposed to be following God, which means he was supposed to be close to God, which means there's a relationship, which means communication frequently, which means Jonah is close enough to God that God doesn't have to specifically spell out, here's what I want you to say, Right? So when God tells me to preach the gospel, you know what he doesn't have to do or shouldn't have to do? Okay, so let me, let me, let's just review. Here's the, the main points of the gospel. You got it? You sure? Here, here's exactly what I want you to say. He, he shouldn't have to do that to me, right? Because I should have been following him long enough, closely enough, consistently enough by now to where he says, hey, go preach the gospel. Okay, got it. That's what Jonah was supposed to do. Go preach against them. This time, because of the events that have already happened, God says, go to Nineveh and preach the message I give you. You know what that was? It was a little bit of divine discipline. It, it was as if God had to say, well, Jonah, I told you this already, and you were supposed to go do it, but we all know how that turned out. You went the other direction, and I had to kind of intervene and get you back on track. So clearly, you may not remember the message you're supposed to deliver, so let's go over it again. That's, that's a, a remedial message from God. And by the way, when you're walking with Jesus, that's not something we want to hear. It's not something we ought to have to hear. Does that make sense? Jonah should have known, but because of his previous behavior, God felt it necessary to review some more fundamental things because, oh, this is, mm, this is good. I didn't even write this down. His behavior displayed the fact, well, he must have forgotten and lost his mind because he didn't know what God wanted him to do, so he must have not known how God wanted him to live either. Because you would think that a prophet who is the man who speaks for God should be close enough to God 
to not have to be constantly reminded what his lifestyle should look like. That's a, a, a great need in Aiken County, South Carolina, the United States, the world. People who are following Jesus, which means you're constantly, consistently in the Word. You're constantly, consistently in prayer. You're constantly and consistently in the fellowship of believers. You know what that means? You shouldn't have to be reminded what God said every other day because you should know it by heart. And you should be living it because it's your routine. It's your ha- Does it, are you going to fail? Sure you are. You're a sinner, just like I am. Every one of us. We're going to fall short. That's why the grace of God is so important. But the fact that Jonah had to be reminded, he wasn't just given the second chance, he was given another lesson. Here, Jonah. Let's try it again. Get up. Go to Nineveh. And this time... Preach this message that I'm going to give you. Let, let, me, let me give you the manuscript. Let me give you the notes so you won't get it wrong. I want you to say it exactly like this. Now, see, he, didn't, he shouldn't have required that. So if we're, this is a, a, a moment of self-examination. What do we do? I try to remember to always include this every time we come to this table, which we'll be doing here in a few weeks again on November the 24th. What, what do we say when we come to the table of the Lord for the Lord's Supper? 1 Corinthians 11. Remember what Paul told the church? A man must examine himself and then partake of the bread and the wine. Because if you come here in an unworthy manner, you're heaping judgment on yourself because you think, oh, it's no big deal. It's just some grape juice and some crackers, so it's not that big a deal. Well, it's, it's, if that's all you think it is, you ought not to come up to the table. It's so much more than that. It's symbolic of the body and blood of Christ, and if we're going to observe that and proclaim His death for us until He comes again, we don't need to do that in just a foolish, flippant little manner. We need to understand what we're doing. So examining ourselves is important because the early church observed the Lord's Supper very frequently. So they were constantly in a state of examining ourselves so we know we're following Jesus like we're supposed to be following Jesus. So you you get the point here? The second chance... Proclaim the message I give you, I, the message I tell you. In other words, for, for me, here's how it applies to preachers, teachers, anyone who is in leadership like that, that's imparting the Word of God. Here's how it looks. If I don't take this Word and pray over it and study it and say, all right, God, what do you want me to say? Guess what? I shouldn't open my mouth. You don't, you don't need my opinion about anything. You need God's Word. And that's it. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm standing up here, and if I, during the week, if I, if I say, well, I don't really know what I want to say, I'm just going to kind of, I'll pick a scripture and I'll just talk about it a little bit, but it'll mostly be, you know, stuff I think up. It, I'll just use the scripture as a footnote to make it sound like it's spiritual. Nobody needs that. Nobody. Okay? We are called to be good students of the Word, critical in our thinking and hearing. So, hey, do y'all listen to other preachers? I do. I listen to people like online or on TV sometimes. I listen to other preachers. But here's what I need to think. 
Is he talking more about himself and his own experiences and telling a story or giving an illustration, or is he preaching the Word? Is he reading and explaining the Word? Because that's what you should be... That's, that's your filter. It doesn't, I don't, it doesn't matter who you listen to, what preacher you listen to, but you should have the same criteria by which you judge, should I be listening to this teacher or should I not be? Is it consistent with the Word of God, the truth that I have from God? Is it mostly the Scripture and explanations of the Scripture and application of the Scripture? Or is it just, oh, well, let me tell you this story. Or a funny thing happened to me the other day. Or let me give you five steps to a beautiful marriage. Or four steps to financial stewardship. Or whatever. You know, those things can be helpful. But guess what? If I'm a preacher, I preach the Word of God and that's it. I can't, I don't think I can make that clear enough. A preacher should preach the Word. Period. Preach the Word. So Jonah was given the message. When you get down to verse 4, it's kind of a turning point. Because in verse 4, the Bible says Jonah set out on the first day because Nineveh was a large city, three days walk across it. Jonah set on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed the message. So here it is. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Now, that's a pretty serious word. Now, I want you to get a picture in your mind. What did Jonah look like? do you think, at this point? Where's he been? You thought about that? Here's old boy rolling up in Nineveh, hollering out, hey, 40 days, this whole city's going to be demolished. But he's not wearing a three-piece suit. And he's not got his hair brushed. He's not wearing deodorant. He's not got on cologne. Here's what he looks like. Best we can tell, from three days and three nights wallowing around in gastric juice in the belly of a whale, his skin is kind of bleached and nasty looking. Do you ever think about what it might smell like inside the belly of a big fish? Not too good. So his clothes have probably dried out by now, but his skin... His hair, his appearance, nasty looking, nasty smelling. And he doesn't say that he stopped in at the Holiday Inn Express on his way into Nineveh to get a little cleaned up, you know. It says he, he went. The, the fish vomited him out onto the land. The word of the Lord came to him again. Go to Nineveh, preach the message I give you. So Jonah got up, went to Nineveh, and he preached. He obeyed this time. But he's got to look horrible. So it's not just the message. It's the person that's delivering the message. He probably got a good bit of attention because of how he looked and smelled. And then his message was just like the final brick in that wall because they looked at him and said, who in the world is that coming down the road? And then he started hollering out, 40 days and Nineveh will be demolished. So people are going to take notice. They're going to listen. But let me tell you the little background. If you don't already know, you probably do. When God sends someone to a particular place with a particular message, guess what he's already done? The Holy Spirit is all in there. 
preparing hearts and minds and helping the people in Nineveh be prepared to receive the message that God sent them through Jonah. So when he got there, it's almost as if people woke up maybe that morning. I'm just, I mean, this is just my imagination, but it's based on how God works and, and what the Scripture says. They might have got up that morning and said, you know, something, just, something feels a little different about today. Like something crazy might happen. You ever, you ever felt like that? You ever just got up and said, I don't know what it is, but something about today just seems a little different. I'm just going to be, I'm going to be extra attentive today. Just something, I don't know. Something just feels off. You ever felt like that? You ever had that extra, like you could be, uh, I, I, this happened before, and you walk, walking in the woods, and, and just like the hair on the back of your neck just starts to stand up a little bit, like something, something's, it's usually I'm about to step on a snake or something, you know, something crazy like that. Something's just off. I wonder if the people in Nineveh had something like that going on. And then they saw this freak of a man who had just spent three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. And his skin is all bleached and nasty looking and nasty smelling. And he starts crying out this prophecy. Forty days and Nineveh will be demolished. You're going to take notice of it. Especially when the Holy Spirit has already prepared your heart and your mind to receive the message. So what does the Bible say about the reaction of the people? This is, this is uncanny. The way there's nothing in between. There's no setup. There's no context beyond what, what we have in the text. It says, Jonah on his first day walking the city proclaimed 40 days Nineveh will be demolished. Look at verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. That's amazing. That's a miracle. And, and note that it doesn't say the people of Nineveh believed in Jonah. The people believed in God. Jonah's, by the way, it's never about the messenger. It's about the message. It's God's word. They didn't believe in Jonah. They believed in God. Because the message was from God for the people through the messenger Jonah. And he was only the conduit. It's like, it's like when Jesus rode into the, to the city of Jerusalem a week before he was killed. I wonder if the donkey thought all the fuss was about him. He was just the carrying the message he wasn't the message it wasn't about the donkey it was about Jesus it wasn't about Jonah it was about the word of God and so the people believed in God the repentance of the people and not only the people by the way faith should never rest in the messenger but in God who gives the message it's the mark of true revival and true preaching so what did they do they called a fast that means they're serious they dressed in sackcloth. What's that mean? That's the typical garment people wore when they were in mourning, great grief and humility. It was nasty looking and uncomfortable to signify outwardly what they were feeling inwardly, that they were mourning over their wickedness and their sin. They were on the verge of true repentance. And by the way, let me tell you another little truth that is always a truth. The truest measure of genuine repentance is a change of behavior. You can say, I repent. 
You can say I'm turning from my sins till the cows come home. But if you keep doing the same thing you were doing before you said you repented, guess what? You didn't repent. Repent. The word repent means turn. I'm going into sin. I'm turning. I'm going away from sin. The truest measure of genuine repentance is a change of behavior. It's not just words. It's on the heart level. That means it changes how you live. That's what repentance looks like. So they proclaimed a fast. They dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. That means everybody was involved in this. This was a national level of repentance. It wasn't just a few people. It wasn't just pockets of people. This was a, a, a grassroots, nationwide or citywide repentance. They were turning from their sins. And not only that, look at verse 6. It started with the people, those closest to the, where the message was being proclaimed. But then it said in verse 6, when the word reached the king, the highest in authority of the city, look how he reacted. He did the same thing. So not only did the people repent and the people believed in God, it says the king believed in God. It says when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. That's why when you hear the phrase, especially in the Old Testament, I repent in sackcloth and ashes. That's a, the, the, the most outward form of demonstrating your repentance. So you put on this terribly uncomfortable uh, garment to, to uh, signify you're in mourning over your wickedness, your sin, and sitting in a, a little bed of ashes to just, you, you are showing everyone you are overcome with grief about your sin. You are, you are convicted of your sin. It's not, see, there's a difference between feeling guilty over something because you got caught or because you know you're wrong and being convicted of it. When, you're, when you have the Holy Spirit's conviction of sin, it's going to drive you to a change in behavior. It's not just going to be, oh, I feel bad about that. Really? Why? Well, because somebody found out about it. So if, you know, if it had remained secretive, you know, I probably wouldn't have felt so bad. That, that's not repentance. That's guilt. There's a difference. So the king then, he didn't just do this for himself. Because you read in verse 6 and going into verse 7, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, sat in ashes. But look at verse 7. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh. This is, this is great. Because the king heard the word, and you know he wasn't the first one to get it, but people were already repenting of their sin. Then the king got it and he personally repented. So now guess what he's doing? He's leading by example. He didn't just personally repent. He issued a decree for the entire city. Look at verse 7 and going into verse 8. Issued the decree by order of the king and his nobles. No person or animal, herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Now I want you to get this. This is pretty important. Even the animals couldn't eat. Did you see that? Even the, so you, you got a, a field of cows and they all got sackcloth draped over them. But the cattle got to repent too? What did the cattle do wrong? I don't know, but it was a full-scale citywide repentance. The king didn't want to leave anybody out, not even the animals. 
that's, that's, per, that's next level repentance. When he, he's, not, he's in include, you, know, you got a couple of dogs over there, put something on them, they got to repent too. I'm sure they earned it. They tried to bite somebody last week, so make them repent too. I don't know. I mean, it just, I'm just telling you what it said. The text says no person or animal, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. So not only the people are fasting and repenting and praying, the animals, they're all, this is a, a whole, a whole full-scale repentance. Furthermore, verse 8, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth. Everyone must call out earnestly to God. Well, I'm glad at least the text did distinguish between the people and the animals calling out to God because if they had the cattle calling out to God, that would just be too much. Okay, But it said everyone, people. So all the people, but the animals are participating too, maybe unwillingly, but they are. And the people, it says everyone must... You see that? Everyone must call out earnestly to God. In other words, don't do it if you don't mean it. That's the word. Don't do it if you don't mean it. Don't put on a show. Don't, don't do like so many American Christians tend to do, and that's they tend to participate in what we call cultural Christianity. It's really rampant, especially in the South. You could not care anything about God. You could not believe the Bible. You could not care anything about living for the Lord in your behavior, but you're going to be on church, in church on Sunday because that's just what you do. Don't do it if you don't mean it. That's what God says because you know who you're fooling? Nobody. Nobody. You say, you can, I say frequently, you can fool people, but you can't fool God. Well, in that regard, who don't know you, you're living against God? I guarantee you everybody in your town, everybody who knows you, it's not like they're blind. I went to, I went to college. With a, I, I went to college. I remember I was coming back home from Lexington, going back to Clemson, and I was driving, and I was left early on a Sunday morning. I, I was driving back, and I got almost to Clemson, and, you know, I passed two boys in a pickup truck dressed in shirt and tie on their way to church. You know where they were? At the gas station returning the empty keg of beer that they had the night before. But they was on their way to church. You know what that means? Don't go if you don't mean it. Well, who are you trying to fool? You think that's going to fool somebody? Sure, it ain't fooling God. Well, I'm going to just live however I want, but I'm going to be in church on Sunday. You've got to keep up the appearance, you know. Why? Why? Why would you do that? The truest measure of repentance, genuine repentance, is a change in behavior. So the king issued a decree. Everyone must call out earnestly. You've got to mean it. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoings. So you know what that says in verse 8? That one verse right there is a picture of repentance. You're going to cry out verbally, earnestly, which means you mean it, and then what does it say? Turn from your wicked doing, your evil ways. So you're going to say it, then you're going to do it. It's both. That's what repentance looks like. 
I am convicted of my sin. I am convicted before God by the Holy Spirit that I have lived, done, said, acted, whatever, in a way that is contrary to the gospel. This is not fitting for somebody who claims Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And I, I am genuinely convicted over it. And so I'm going to turn away. I'm going to cry out for forgiveness. And then I'm going to change by the power of the Spirit working in me. I'm going to change my behavior. So I'm going to say it, then I'm going to do it. And I'm going to mean it both times. Does that make sense? It's a genuine call to repentance. And look at the response of the king, verse 9, right here at the end. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Important point to see here. The last thing the king says in his decree. Did you notice he said, hey, if we do this, if we really mean it, and if we change our behavior, guess what? God won't punish us. That's not what he said. This is so, so important for our understanding of who God is and his grace and mercy toward us. The king said, he issued the decree. He said everybody's going to fast. Everybody's going to put on sackcloth. Everybody's going to call out earnestly to God. Everybody's going to change their ways and turn from their wickedness. And then he said, who knows? Do you see that? You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the, the three Hebrew boys in the fiery furnace standing out in the front. And Nebuchadnezzar saying, you need to bow down. And they said, we're not going to do it. And, they, and do you remember what they said? They said, our God is able to save us, and he's going to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not worshiping that. we got one God, and it's not you. So they knew God was able. They didn't know if he would, but they knew he was able. The king, brand new, looks like, brand new follower of God, said, we're going to do this. As a whole city, we're, we are uh, repenting, we're calling out to God, we're putting on sackcloth, we're fasting, we're changing our behavior. Who knows if God will relent? He might. He, he might not punish us. But you can infer this from what he says. Even if he does, it's not like we don't deserve it. You see that? It's not like we don't... We're, we're changed. From this, we can't change the past, but from this day forward, we're going to do what God says. And, and he may still punish us for this other, but even, you know, regardless, we're, we're repenting. We're following God. We're calling out to God. We're changing our behavior. Repentance is a change of behavior. So who knows if he'll relent? Who knows what his perfect plan is for us? Verse 10, God saw their actions. They had turned from their evil ways, so God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. God saw their deeds. The Nineveh, which God threatened to destroy, had basically passed away. It didn't exist again because the people in there were now different. So our repentance from sin, assuming we do repent, is made possible only because God himself first... Oh, oh gosh, this is good. God didn't punish us for our sin, did he? Who did he punish? Punished his one and only perfect son. The only way we are even able to repent 
is because God has already taken our penalty. The gospel of Jesus Christ shows, demonstrates for us how God has dealt with our sin. He's already put it on His Son. So the only reason we're able to repent now is because Jesus took the judgment on Himself. This passage is so practical for us today. We live in a world that does not honor God or acknowledge Him as God. We live in a world where people, by and large, don't live in a way that reflects following Jesus. And we're part of that world because many times, as much as we come together in here and proclaim and profess faith in Christ and following Jesus, as much as we do that, we, many times, do not live in a way that reflects following Jesus. I'll, I'll close with this. In, in uh, the 90s, there was a, a band called DC Talk. This is where Toby Mack came from, for all you folks who follow him. Michael Tate sings with the Newsboys. He was also in that group. They had a song on their Jesus Freak album called What If I Stumble? And at the beginning of that, the, the, the gist of the song was, as a Christian, what if I stumble, what if I fall, what if I lose my step and I make fools of us all? In other words, as a Christian, what if I live in a way that I'm claiming Christ and everybody knows I'm claiming Christ, but I'm living in a way that does not reflect Christ? What if I'm the reason people go away from Christianity because I'm not living the faith I profess? Right at the beginning of the song, there's a recording of a, an old sermon that they sampled in there to, the, right before the song begins. You know what it says? It says, The biggest cause of atheism today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then walk out the door and deny Him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. If we're going to say it, we need to do it. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org. 